We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. One of the ritziest hotels in New York before and during World War II was the Hotel Pierre. It was a real-life Café Americain from Casablanca, filled with doubtful and flashy characters from Nazi fascist Vichy backgrounds and connections. The hotel had been bought by John Paul Getty after a waiter had been rude to him when he was a guest. Getty bought the hotel so he could sack him. When Getty bought control of it, he first employed an Austrian baron, then a German war veteran and an ex-U-boat captain as managers. Among the residents living in luxury suites at the Pierre on no visible income was Countess Merl. She spent her time making herself attractive to U.S. Army officers. She was in a perpetual state of wide-eyed curiosity about military matters. Without Standard Oil, Exxon, the greatest oil company in the world, giving Hitler a helping hand, World War II in Europe couldn't have happened. Here's this amazing story. World War I had mostly been an old-style war fought with infantry marching around on their own two legs. Trench warfare meant that the pace of battle at that speed was okay for legging it. But at the end of the Great War, tanks and motorised vehicles had started to come in. Petrol really started to matter, and the dreams of the new Germany under Adolf Hitler would depend on petrol to power the new-style tank forces and air forces of high-performance fighters and bombers, able to perform things at incredible speeds and incredible heights thanks to the new high-octane fuels that had recently been developed. The problem for Germany with fighting a war that depended on having unlimited supplies of petrol was that it didn't have any. The visionary German general Heinz Guderian in 1937 wrote a book called Achtung, Panzer, Danger, Tanks. In it, he set out a table of world oil production. America had a staggering 62%, followed by Russia with 10%. Germany was nowhere to be seen. Hitler was a keen reader of all books on military topics. It seems impossible to think that he hadn't read this book and seen this depressing information. But where there's a will, there's a way, as they say, and Hitler was a man of an unlimited belief in what could be accomplished with willpower. The famous Leni Reifenstahl documentary about the Nazi party rally in Nuremberg was called Triumph of the Will. 
If Germany wanted to wage modern, lightning, motorised war, the problem of how Germany could get oil had to be solved. In 1934, 85% of all finished petroleum products that Germany used were imported. One of the biggest American oil companies, Standard Oil, known today as Exxon, and also known through its subsidiaries BP and Esso, entered into a partnership with German chemical giant IG Farben. The partnership was to develop a way to make gasoline by processing it from coal resources. The process was called hydrogenation. It was developed and financed by Standard Oil, Exxon. Germany had plenty of coal. If this worked, Germany's armed forces could be in business. So could Hitler. One of the very early associates in Germany of Standard Oil was through a company called Vacuum Oil, and that was located in Austria. A key young man in that company was Adolf Eichmann. Eichmann was a close friend of Ernst Kaltenbrunner. Kaltenbrunner was to become the head of Hitler's secret police, the infamous Gestapo. In 1942, Adolf Eichmann would achieve his greatest accomplishments when he was put in charge of organising the Holocaust of the Jews. I guess he was able to give up his daytime job with vacuum oil then. Eichmann was executed in Israel in 1962 as a war criminal after having fled to South America like many of the top Nazis did. Now the deal between Standard Oil and IG Farben was for Standard Oil to be responsible for the development of synthetic oil and for IG Farben to be responsible for the development of artificial rubber. The deal was known as the JASCO Agreement. The aim of the agreement was to ensure Standard Oil and IG Farben had a world monopoly on both synthetic oil and synthetic rubber. A new partnership company was set up for this and it was called American IG Farben. In April 1929, Walter C. Teagle, the president of Standard Oil of New Jersey, became a director of this new partnership vehicle. All research and patents relating to the production of oil from coal were held by both Standard Oil and IG Farben. Experimental plants to develop the hydrogenation process into one that could be carried out on an industrial scale were built both in America and Germany. I guess the deal made a lot of sense to Standard Oil, although at first you might not think so. I mean, Standard Oil had pretty much a monopoly on American natural oil, which meant a monopoly on world natural oil. And at first, that was the only kind of oil there was. But if people were going to be able to make oil out of coal, then that monopoly would be affected, jeopardised unless you had a monopoly on that too. So the best way to protect your oil monopoly was to be the leader in making synthetic oil as well. And that would pretty much put the monopoly on oil to bed for standard oil. But what about rubber? Well, in the world back in the 1920s and 1930s, all rubber came from rubber plantations in Malaya. In the war back then, America depended 
for its incredible development on automobiles. And that meant that it had to have rubber for cars and trucks to move on. There was an appreciation in America that supplies of rubber could be threatened by an increasingly militaristic Japan. So a way of making tyres without rubber had to be found. The JASCO agreement made IG Farben responsible for funding and achieving the development of artificial rubber. It looked like a good division of tasks. Standard Oil would come up with a way to make oil from coal on an industrial scale and IG Farben would come up with a way to make artificial rubber on an industrial scale. This division of effort avoided unnecessary duplication and waste of money by having these two giant companies attacking the same problem at the same time. How did that work out for America? Well, I'll come to that. With Hitler coming to power in January 1933, even closer friendly ties developed between Standard Oil and the top people in Nazi Germany. Through German subsidiary companies, Standard Oil made contributions to Reichsführer Heinrich Himmler's personal fund. It was also a member of a group known as Himmler's Circle of Friends, which continued until 1944, close to the war's end in 1945. A secret internal memo of IG Farben showed just how vital the deal with Standard Oil was, and the major contribution made by Standard Oil of New Jersey to the Nazi war machine, something that the American executives of Standard Oil concealed from U.S. Senate inquiries into what was really going on. In 1933, John Rockefeller Jr., son of the famous multi-millionaire, billionaire in today's term, John D. Rockefeller, appointed William Farish as chairman of Standard Oil of New Jersey. This was the year that Adolf Hitler came to power as the Chancellor of Germany. One of Farish's main objectives, set for him by Rockefeller, was to work in close association with IG Farben and to hide ownership of assets and financial transactions from scrutiny by US authorities especially if America became involved in a war with Germany. The last thing they wanted was the American government seizing their assets. I.G. Farben's association with the new Nazi government was tricky at first. The Nazis saw I.G. Farben as a Jewish operation, and it certainly had a lot of Jewish connections at first. But this image had to be changed by the people at IG Farben if they were going to prosper under the new regime. They did this by becoming more rapidly anti-Semitic than the Nazis. Well, of course, I'm exaggerating. It wasn't possible to become more anti-Semitic than the Nazis. But IG Farben certainly stood shoulder to shoulder with the Nazis against international Jewry. And how? On June 14, 1940, IG Farben opened a factory at Auschwitz prison camp to produce artificial rubber and gasoline from coal using patents jointly owned with Standard Oil. Most people think that Auschwitz was a camp where Jews were exterminated, but it wasn't. 
It was a part of a complex of concentration camps adjoining each other at this site in Poland. Auschwitz was the factory camp and Birkenau was the death camp, purely for exterminating anyone sent there. The site is often called the Auschwitz-Birkenau complex. Standard Oil and IG Farben provided the capital and technology for the factory operation at Auschwitz, while Hitler supplied the labour consisting of his political enemies, Jews, gypsies and, well, other undesirables, let's be honest. Auschwitz's inmates were used to build the IG plant, the biggest in the IG system, and then they were worked there until they died, as happened to everyone who followed in their footsteps. Standard withheld these patents from US military and industry, but supplied them freely to the Nazis. After the war, a US Senate committee, the Kilgore Committee, found that Standard fully accomplished IG's purpose of preventing United States production of synthetic rubber by dissuading American rubber companies from undertaking independent research in developing synthetic rubber processes. This had been part of the division of labour between Standard Oil and IG Farben. The Germans got access to all of the American secrets about how to extract oil from coal and how to manufacture high-performance fuels for the military and military aircraft. But IG Farben did not reveal to America how to manufacture synthetic rubber. Before IG Farben had entered into the JASCO agreement with Exxon, the Americans had done decades of work on motor fuels, additives, to get vastly improved performance from them and how to make them synthetically. The Americans were way ahead of the Germans in this. In particular, they had developed at great expense a large number of methods of testing gasoline for different uses. On the basis of their experiments, they had recognised the good anti-knock quality of iso-octane. All this knowledge naturally became intellectual property that Nazi Germany could use as a result of the JASCO agreement, which saved Germany a lot of effort and avoided a long and expensive learning curve. Standard Oil even helped Germany build plants to make synthetic oil and fuel additives. Years after the war, Nazi armaments genius Albert Speer told a congressional investigator that Germany could not have attempted its September 1939 Blitzkrieg of Poland without the standard oil performance-boosting additives and synthetic oil. There could have been no World War II in Europe. Evidence presented to the Kilgore Committee after World War II confirmed that Standard Oil had seriously imperiled the war preparations of the United States because of the technology they had transferred to the Germans about high-performance fuels and how to extract oil from coal. In return, the Americans had been completely taken in by the Germans. They got zip technology from the Germans on how to develop synthetic rubber. 
The Germans gave them access to patents, but they didn't give them any know-how on how to use the patents to make synthetic oil. They had tricked Standard Oil into shutting down all research into synthetic rubber in the United States while it waited for the handing over of the German technology, which never happened. Standard Oil had blocked all other American companies from undertaking that research too. Accordingly, concluded the Kilgore Committee, Standard fully accomplished IG's purpose of preventing United States production of synthetic rubber by dissuading American rubber companies from undertaking any independent research into developing synthetic rubber processes. The Germans were often outsmarted by the Allies on the intelligence front during World War II, but this was a huge fail by the Americans. At the start of this program, I said that Hitler couldn't have started World War II without America's help, mainly without the help of Standard Oil, Exxon. Hitler had expanded the Germany that he had been appointed Chancellor of over the years following his rise to power. Every step had increased the military and industrial might of Germany significantly over the power of particularly England and France that were Germany's main opponents if war broke out in a way that Hitler had not intended. Hitler really wanted to expand to the east, conquering Poland and then Russia. He was a reasonable man and he would have been quite happy with that. The war with England and France started in the most ridiculous way when they finally developed some backbone and stood by Poland which they were powerless to help when the time came. Russia, which had been suspicious of Hitler's Germany, made a deal with Germany in 1939, just before Germany invaded Poland and then later themselves, because England and France had proved how useless they were as allies when they had abandoned Czechoslovakia to the Germans in 1938. As soon as Hitler came to power, he immediately started to rearm Germany for the war that he had announced to his top generals only a few days after he had come to power with the aim of invading Russia. In 1935, Hitler took over the Tsar. His army's instructions on entering the Tsar were that if France countered by moving its army in, the Germans were to well, run away, to put it bluntly, that would have been the end of Hitler. World War Two could have been stopped then. No war, no bloodshed really. But the West thought that Hitler was entitled to take back part of his own country. It had been taken off Germany to keep one of the key industrial regions of Germany away from a Germany that Europe had been afraid of rearming and starting a second world war. Where on earth did they get that idea? Next, Hitler took over the Rhineland, more of Germany's crucial industrial land. In March 1938, Hitler took over Austria after staging unrest through Nazis in that country. Now, Austria had never been a part of Germany, and this was a grab that should have caused concern in France and England. 
but they did nothing. The next step was to take over an area that had never been part of Germany, but which had a large German ethnic population called the Sudetenland. It was then part of a new country called Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia had been carved out of the Austro-Hungarian Empire at the end of World War I. The Sudetenland was land along the borders between Czechoslovakia and Germany. It included a crucial mountain range which had been recently reinforced by some of the most formidable defence works in Europe by the Czechs, comparable to the legendary Maginot Line. And there was no easy way around the end of these defences. Czechoslovakia also had a massive, well-trained, well-equipped and well-led army of 35 divisions, over half a million men. It was well-equipped with modern weapons, including some of the best tanks in Europe made by the Skoda Works. German officers in 1939 after they had the chance to have a close-up look at the Czech fortifications, said they were impressive and probably would have been impregnable to the German army. After the Germans had taken over the Sudetenland, with the help of the British and French spinelessness in abandoning the country which they had treaty obligations to help, Hitler almost had a coronary when he realised just how strong the Czech defences and military were. He said, with hindsight, about the confrontation that he had engineered over the Sudetenland, that he was greatly disturbed by what he had found out. He said that maybe the German army could have gone around their defences, but they could never have overcome them head on. The Germans didn't have any significant superiority over the Czechs, they didn't have the element of surprise. The Russians were willing to march to the support of Czechoslovakia against Germany, but only if France honoured its commitments to support that country. To get to Czechoslovakia, the Russians would have had to have crossed Romania, which was likely to have let them do that. Even ignoring the real difficulties that the Germans would have had in defeating the Czech army, there was a huge concern that the Germans had. Before Hitler could push his luck with the British and the French in early 1938, his air force, the Luftwaffe, had virtually none of the fuel that they would need to put their air force into the skies. By this stage of military aircraft development, High-performance, modern military aircraft needed high-octane ethyl petrol. To make ethyl petrol, you needed an additive called tetraethyl lead. German plants that were going to be able to make this, with the help of Standard Oil, weren't yet producing, and tetraethyl wouldn't be available for another year from the German factories. Hitler couldn't run the risk of pushing his luck in intimidating England and France into giving him the Sudetenland unless he could be guaranteed that the Luftwaffe could fly. The game of brinksmanship over Czechoslovakia could have easily turned into a war. If it did, 
Germany was doomed without the Luftwaffe being able to operate. An urgent call went out from the Nazi hierarchy to IG Farben to call on Standard Oil, its partner, to urgently ship 500 tonnes of this vital fuel additive to Germany. The tension between Germany and Czechoslovakia was well known when this request was made. IG Farben was in the business of making oil from its conversion program. It never bought oil, let alone $20 million worth, a fortune in 1938. There could only be one possible reason why IG Farben wanted this oil additive in this enormous quantity. It needed it for the German Air Force to be able to fight a major European war if Hitler's gamble against England and France over Czechoslovakia went belly up. Standard Oil, for its part, had no problem in doing this vital transaction and getting this additive to Germany as quickly as possible. The takeover of the Sudetenland in October 1938, followed by the invasion and conquest of the rest of Czechoslovakia by Germany in March 1939, proved a major windfall for German rearmament. From the occupation of the Sudetenland, the Germans acquired, at a stroke, one and a half million rifles, 750 aircraft, 600 tanks, and 2,000 field guns, all of which were to prove useful in the months to come. Enough weapons and supplies to outfit a further 20 divisions for Germany. That's about 300,000 men. The German Reich also gained the great Czechoslovakian armaments facilities, the Skoda factories in Pilsen and Prague and the Brünn works which made the Bren gun and other small arms. In addition to individual resources, the German war effort gained access to the Czechoslovakian copper, nickel, lead, aluminium, zinc and tin. Strategically, too, the door was now open for Germany to penetrate the Danube and the Balkan region economically, and in terms of military strategy, the Reich was now better positioned to launch campaigns to conquer further living space in the east. Without American help from Standard Oil Exxon, there had been a real chance that World War II in Europe would not have happened. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in The Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday morning starting at 10.30am. Probably the world's best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum, borrowing the Danish Kulzberg slogan for their beer. If you missed this program, you can catch up with it as a podcast on Spotify, Apple, and many other sites. Search for The Danger Zone, bracket, DZ, close bracket. And if you like this program, you'll definitely love my other program, CYKIAE, also available on the same podcast sites.